At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. I'm Laura Youngkin of The Brave Millennial. This is Lars Helgeson, CEO of Green Rope and author of CRM for Dummies. I'm Allison Bloom-Fastock, the founder and CEO of Know Your Crew. This is Brad Van Dam, president and CEO of Marge Confectionery. And you're listening to High Level Wisdom for New Generation Theater. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 22 of High Level Wisdom for New Generation Leaders. This is an amazing summer. This summer is packed full of resources for you as an executive, for you as a millennial early in your career or up in mid-management, no matter where you are. This summer, not only are we mixing the conversations we're having with CEOs around the country, but we're also talking to people who have the right resources, whether you're an executive trying to increase your talent engagement and or you're a millennial inside of your career and you're wanting the edge. You want to know where you should be. This is the year. And so this episode is a very interesting because I am talking to none other than Richard Gogoline. Now, some people may say, now, who is Richard? Well, have you ever heard of Harris Casino? Yeah, he's the former CEO of that. Richard has a career that is over 50 years just going to let that sink in for a moment. 50 years, he's founded four companies and owned and operated two hotels. You were going to hear in this interview uh, something fascinating. He has been a CEO literally since his early 20s and never had any other type of role. Not kidding. You're going to find out why that is and how he got to that place. But his insights are fascinating. He is very steeped in understanding how to grow the gaming world. And now we're not talking PlayStation, Xbox, and, and we use, we're talking casinos. We're talking somebody who was a part of the merger of the Aladdin hotel. We're talking somebody who's literally done it in the gaming world. And he has a lot of information to share. So sit back and listen to my interview with the former CEO of Harris casino, Richard Gogolin. Richard, thank you so much for coming on the, the, the show today and on the podcast. I am too excited to have you. Well, Chris, I really appreciate the uh, invitation and the opportunity to just visit about some of the things that are occurring as the demographics of our country and this world change and change so dramatically. Uh, we all have uh, the opportunity and, in essence, the requirement to learn how to manage and navigate all of the changes that are occurring and how they are impacting our lives and those of others. Absolutely. Absolutely. So without further ado, here's what I would like to do. I know your background literally covers about 50 years 
of, of, of experience. I, I know this, and this is not something that's, you know, to be frowned upon. I actually find that to be a, an achievement. Um, but here's what I would like for you to do just for our audience to get a better understanding of who you are as a person. Take everybody back. Let, let's go all the way back before you were a CEO, before you were, you know, the guy in Vegas that that now can can can, you know, see things from a different perspective and invest in these different companies. Take us back. Where did Richard start and what what was kind of the what were you doing when you were younger, when you were in your 20s? Right. And and, and how did tell us about this journey that got you to becoming even the CEO of Harris? Uh, okay, I will do that, and uh, I will try and not take as long uh, in the tale as it took me in the doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I think the the place for me to really start, one, I should start off by saying I was really blessed because I had a wonderful childhood with two loving parents, and and life was very comfortable. We were not affluent, but we were a long way from being poor, and so everything was really good and very, very even-keeled and full of love and, and just interesting events. So that kind of starts me off in an interesting way because I then went on into uh, thinking I was going to be in pre-med, which lasted about two years before I managed to flunk out of a college and uh, went on to a new one um, and uh, with the admonition that they would let me in on probation for summer school, and as long as I got straight A's, they would then let me come on in and start my junior year. Uh, it was an interesting uh, agreement that I reached because in the classes that they picked were all classes that I would have had to take in pre-med. Oh, wow. And <laughs> so <laughs> I said, this is not fair. However, I picked it up, and I got through it and did it. But the real place where my life changed in a, a really dramatic way is I joined the Navy into the Aviation Officer Candidate School. That was in 1957, a long time ago. And I was in my very early 20s. And, uh, you know, my whole purpose in doing that was to keep from being uh, drafted and living in a trench. I thought okay. it'd be a lot more fun to be in the military and be able to sleep in a nice, warm, comfortable bed and eat good food and fly fancy airplanes. <laughs> Absolutely. So during the course of this uh, experience, the first four months was what they called indoctrination, boot camp, whatever. And it was both military, academic, and physical training. And uh, my focus in that period of time was to be as invisible as I could be. When I got there, I discovered that it wasn't kind of like what I thought it was going to be. It wasn't the Navy, per se. The Marines actually ran the aviation test <laughs> school. Wow. And uh, that was a bit of a shock. I thought I'd shown up at the wrong place. You know, what did I sign? Uh, at any rate, uh, I still had this focus of being invisible, and the first time that they mustered us out and got us all into a you know, platoon squad formation, I was in the back squad trying to hide, and the master sergeant said, a young man, and he pointed to me, come forward, and I came forward, and, and he asked me what my name was, I told him, and what happened was I then became what they call guide on. 
Guidon is the guy who stands the front of the first squad right next to the drill sergeant all oh, the wow. time. <laughs> and the reason that happened is because I was taller than anybody else. Everybody could see me. So we went through this three, four-month period, and the last uh, month or six weeks, class officers, regimental officers, are selected, and they're selected through a process of academic average grades, military uh, affinity and, and ability, and physical agility and, and conditioning. Uh, we were in this uh, big meeting room to be told who were going to be the officers, and I wasn't really paying a hell of a lot of attention because I really didn't think it had anything to do with me. Long story short, I was named regimental commander. And to say that I was shocked would uh, be really a major understatement. I was shocked. I was scared. I thought, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? How am I going to do that? Well... You know, you're really not given an option. You either do it or you, well, you <laughs> just right. do it. And it that, right. that isn't an option. It's just, <laughs> okay, I'm going to do it. That was an interesting revelation for me, and it changed my life forever. I had always been a popular kid, but I'd never been part of the you know, key leadership group of the kids that I hung out with. I just was a part of the group. I never thought of myself as a leader. And suddenly, here I was, a regimental commander over the Navy pre-flight regiment with a few thousand people in it. And, and I'm saying, oh, my God. And I then said, ah, I guess I really am a leader. And from that moment on, I took that as not only a mandate, but as a, a mission of being responsible and accountable or the, the gifts I'd really been given, but that I hadn't really acknowledged or recognized. Wow. That led me to go to graduate school. I got my master's degree in Stanford. And uh, my goal that I set when I was in graduate school was, quite simply, I would be the CEO of an organization before my 40th birthday. Now that is a serious goal. I didn't care what company, I didn't care what industry, I didn't care what location geographically. My goal was to be to take that leadership skill and an affinity that I had been identified with in the Navy and really use it to my advantage and hopefully to others. Um, I graduated, got my MBA. Uh, that was about age 26, 27, something like that. Um, I went on, and by the time I was 35, I was the CEO of a company. And from the time I was 35 on, I've never been anything else other than a CEO, COO, general manager, chief operating officer of every single entity I've ever been involved in. That leads to another interesting thing that had a huge impact on how I moved forward in this long path of my life and career. If that's all you've ever done, you have no functional skills. Wow. I was a marketing person. I was never a financial person. I was never a pure operations person. I was always the general manager, CEO, COO. And I immediately recognized, fortunately, 
that meant that I needed to select people around me and that would be a part of leadership that were, one, very smart, smarter than me, two, who really, really wanted to be responsible and most importantly wanted to be fully accountable. Now, Richard, but you point out something that I think is interesting because that you now to have that sort of sense of self-awareness at that age is impressive. But I, I think you also touch on something that I'm not sure many CEOs would agree with is that let's just be honest. Most people think that now that I am the CEO, I am the smartest person. So I know and that's a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I made it to this point. I mean, I am now the top person, so everyone should, you know, listen to me and 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 I should be able to drive directive. How how did you I mean, even the idea that you come up with the fact that you realized you had no functional skills as a CEO. That is that's actually very impressive. This interview is off to a great start, Richard. I'm just telling you that right now. <laughs> Well, you know, candidly, if I've, I've forgotten now, but recently I read, I think the average CEO now lasts, what, three years, is it? Wow. Wow. It's not very long. Three, four years, that's all. And why? Well, I think in part because they think they are smarter than anybody else. And they then do not bring around them people who in fact are very smart, who really are committed, who really are responsible and accountable, and they do not create cultures where people feel very free, open, to be able to communicate whatever they are thinking about, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. Everything's okay to say, as long as you do it respectfully, and to move forward and to create maybe totally different paradigms of what we ought to be doing as a business or as an organization. Wow. So I was fortunate that I did understand that really quickly, and that meant that that I literally did bring people in, and I literally had to set up a culture that allowed everybody to really have transparent communications and the freedom to fail and not use failures as opportunities to denigrate or make fun of other individuals, but in fact use failure as an opportunity for us to all come together and learn. And and in the process of doing that, so often you'd have this failure, what seemed like starting off to be a good idea, you'd have this failure, and then when you brought everybody together, oh my gosh, the dialogue and the discourse and the, and the turning over the rocks and everything, very often that idea just evolved into something else that was really special and that you could then pursue and and go on to different places. And and so I just spent my whole career in every place I was, you know, ever stationed. That's what I did. I just brought those kind of people around and I created that kind of culture and that kind of freedom and uh, people really stepped up to it and people really engaged and uh, I think you know, not only did it help them individually, but it all helped them to grow. Wow. So <laughs> so I'm interested here. So you, you, you start out, you have this goal. I'm going to be a mm -hmm. leader. I'm going to, you know, be the top person. You achieve that goal in your early 30s. 
Mm-hmm. Talk, then share with our audience the journey of how you go from that to, oh, I see this casino over there, and I think it would be really cool if I ran <laughs> that too. <laughs> well, that uh, I, I'm going to give you a very short version of that. Uh, part of the really, really positive, extraordinary experiences I've had, there were three, three times where I was the CEO of a company, and got fired. Wow. And those three times (laughs) were really transitional moments of extraordinary growth and growth opportunities. And the first time, uh, when I was a CEO in this company that when I went in as 35 years old, uh, when I was fired, I mean, I obviously was devastated, I was shocked, I was upset, uh, I was scared. I mean, here I was, a young guy with two little kids and not any money and and now on the street. Uh, I was lucky. I had a fellow who was a Ph.D. Uh, in organizational psychology who was a good friend, and he reached out and said, Richard, you now, I, I know you got fired. You now have a new job. You come to my office. You're going to work for me. You're going to have a job eight to five every day, you're going to work really hard, and your job is to find the job. And I'm going to provide you with all the support and all the counsel, all the guidance I can for nothing. You don't pay me anything, and you don't pay me any rent. You also don't get paid. Wow. Well, what this guy did, his name was Lynn Corot, was really bring me out of this early on you know, funk and feeling so bad about what a disaster I had managed to find and uh, and bring me back into reality that said gee this is a great opportunity for you to move on and do some other really exciting stuff that led me into wr grace a big multinational conglomerate i ended up being very quickly the chief operations officer of a about a one and a half billion dollar multinational group that was in everything from you know uh, house goods to toys, hobbies, housewares to uh, making cheese in Spain and jam and jelly in Belgium and making applesauce in Germany and having a, a, a uh, you know a, a travel agency business in uh, the UK and a chewing gum business in Ireland. And, wow! Uh, a a large, very large. Uh, sourcing company uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, And so going from this relatively small, what was in the restaurant actually, restaurant industry, small business, to suddenly getting fired, to moving into this massively expanded environment, totally unlike anything I'd ever been in before, and then having all of the opportunities that that presented in learning and growing and and stretching uh, on all sorts of planes was just an extraordinary gift. And uh, from there, I ended up being headhunted out to Holiday Inns at a time when Holiday Inns was looking seriously at getting into the gaming business, back to your original question. Wow. And so I went into Holiday Inns as an executive vice president and a member of the board of directors and was put in charge of getting us into the gaming business. 
And I led the team that, in fact, uh, reached out and approached Harris and ended up acquiring Harris. This was after Bill Harris had passed. Uh, that deal was done in February of 1980, again, a very long time ago. And uh, when the deal was closed, I was then made the chief executive officer of Harris Hotels and Casinos, headquartered in Reno. I continued to be a director of Holiday Inns uh, and an executive vice president of that company. That went on for a handful of years. Uh, I was then promoted back to the parent company, which then had changed its name to Holiday Corporation and became the president and chief operating officer of Holiday Corporation, with Harris continuing to report to me, uh, along with Holiday Inns, Embassy Suites, Hampton Inns, Residence Inns, uh, I think that was it, <laughs> and uh, did that for a few more years. Uh, and then I had another really interesting event occur. The CEO, my boss, at Holiday Corporation and I really had some significant differences in how we saw leadership and how we believed the culture should be addressed and grown. He was a command and control person, uh, take no names, throw people under the bus when they failed. I obviously was not that kind of person. I have already described my approach to doing things. And long story short, on a year that in our annual report was stated the best single year Holiday Corporation had ever had, and gaming then represented over half of the company's operating income, and uh, the hotel businesses were thriving, I was dismissed. Wow. Now, he made it a deal with me. It was a little messy, but we got there. He made a deal with me that said he wanted not to say that he had fired me. He wanted to say that I had reached out for other opportunities that I thought were exciting. Okay. <laughs> well, I was willing to do that, uh, not because I was ashamed that I got fired, but because in doing that, I also got a three-year separation agreement that was extremely uh, <laughs> beneficial to me and my Absolutely. family. Now, now, but Richard, I have to ask you, though, because this is the kind of conversation, which is I knew why I knew Richard being on the show would be just awesome. But I'm interested when the guy in the front lines, you know, gets fired. Nobody hears about that. They just say, oh, well, he got fired. OK, somebody's news in. Yeah. When the CEO gets fired, that is that is news. That is like breaking news in the company and everybody finds out. How does that feel to be the CEO and actually get fired and everybody knows it? What What is that kind of like? Take me inside of that thought process when that kind of happens. Well, I, actually, what I have to correct, I was not the CEO of Holiday Corporation. I was a chief operating officer and the president. Um, second, nobody knew I got fired because the deal that the CEO insisted on for me to end up with the separation agreement was that I had made a decision to just have a change in my life and uh, go do other things that I 
found a particular interest. Right. Later on, uh, uh, probably a couple of years later, uh, you know, it kind of became more, uh, uh, people became more aware that uh, actually this was not something that I chose to do. Uh, and they didn't know why it had happened. And it, and it really did happen primarily because the chemistry between me and the CEO was awful. Uh, and it was strange because he and I had become very close personal friends before all this happened. Wow. And close family friends and stuff with our kids. Wow. And uh, and then this the chemistry just didn't work when I showed up in Memphis and I was right down the hall as the chief operating officer and he was the chief executive officer. So stuff like that does happen and not necessarily for any reason that makes a whole lot of sense, but it happens. Right. And that then moved me into a totally different kind of a realm. I went to Napa Valley. We had acquired property there a few years earlier. We decided that's where we were going to build a home and make a home. And, uh, and we went to Napa, and we lived there for 10 years. And what did I do there? Well, I decided I didn't want to go back into public corporate life. I decided I really wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I wanted to do other kinds of things. So I spent 10 years doing remedial management, turnaround management, uh, was the CEO of a privately held company that was in major distress, was there for a couple of years getting it turned around and replatformed. Uh, but again, not a public company. It was family-owned, 100% by one family. So very different than a big you know, New York Stock Exchange type of an environment. Sure. Uh, but I did that through a period of about 10 or 12 years, doing those kinds of things, everything from uh, a technology company in San Jose to a uh, company that had a patented product that was a water conservation product focused on agriculture out of Portland, Oregon, <laughs> to the teddy bear <laughs> plush toy company uh, uh, in San Francisco that operated and sold product uh, throughout the world, a company called Dakin. Uh, and uh, so it just kind of evolved and rolled along, and I ended up in the gaming business again. Uh, I was asked to come into Las Vegas to take over the dunes that had gotten into a lot of trouble and was now owned by Sumitomo Bank out of Tokyo. They asked me to come in and take charge of that company, that gaming enterprise, while it was going through a due diligence process with Mirage, who was trying to acquire it. And I did that for about six months. And uh, we were quite successful in, in an environment where people were, it was really a chaotic environment, but we were able to get it very stabilized and very engaged in terms of the 1,500, 1,800 people who worked there. To the extent that when the deal was finally done and we knew we were really closing the dunes, uh, we announced to all of it, and all of our people knew this was happening. It was not a shock. There was a, a big job fair because Mirage was getting ready to open Treasure Island, and they needed a whole lot of employees. So they were going to interview all of the dunes employees wow. that were interested in 
and that possible opportunity. The day of the the uh, job fair, uh, which was all set up in the dunes in the conference center, uh, came, and it was to open at 8 o'clock, and at 8 o'clock there was not a single dunes person there. Nobody. Wow. They did not believe we were actually really going to close, even though we had specifically told them that we were going to close. They just couldn't believe it because everything had been going quite well. So about every hour on the hour, I got on the public (laughs) PA system and the dunes and said, attention dunes employees, we really are close. Wow. (laughs) And you really need to go to that job (laughs) fair. Wow. A week later, we had a kind of an awards and thank you ceremony thing one evening in the uh, uh, corner of the, the dunes right out on Flamingo Boulevard and Las Vegas Boulevard. I called the Dome of the Sea, I think it was. At any rate, uh, we had this closing ceremony where we had a toast of champagne and everybody exited the building. We locked the doors and turned out the lights and the song was played on the street at the same time. And uh, they killed the lights and the pylon sign on the street. So there were about 1,500 of us out there on that sidewalk, most everybody crying, uh, as we literally closed down the dunes from its existence within the Las Vegas environment. Wow! So, so uh, you've got a you've got a you. It's a it's a very fascinating background that you have, but you somehow walked away from gaming and found yourself back in it at that point, right? <laughs> yep, I did. <laughs> I uh, I went away from gaming, and then I kept somehow or other getting drawn back in. So when the dunes closed, I actually was involved then with Indian gaming in the Four Corner area of Colorado. I created a gaming company and small little resort complex for the Southern Ute Indian tribe. I uh, was there for three, four years or so, um, and uh, uh did what we said we were going to do, which was to train the tribal membership on how to run a hotel casino complex, albeit a small one, so that their people could literally step in and be the management and the leadership of that business. Wow. We did that. Uh, we had five years to do it. We did it in three or three and a half years, and we exited that. Um, so then I was out uh, doing other stuff and entrepreneurial kinds of things. And uh, lo and behold, I got called again that said, uh, how would you like to come in to the Aladdin? Where we're going to uh, create a new resort casino platform on the real estate that the Aladdin was on. And again, a very long story, but I got there and ended up being the CEO of Aladdin with the responsibility to create the operating entity and to get them all in position and trained and ready for the opening and then to open and operate the business. I was not responsible for the redevelopment or the construction side of it until about (laughs) a year and a half in. The ownership of the Aladdin at the time was in total disarray. They hated each other company out of London and a real estate uh, 
trust family, very wealthy family out of New York, hated each other. I spent most of my time trying to figure out how to keep them from killing each other. Uh, and then a shopping center company out of Canada who hated both of them. Wow. So <laughs> at any rate, uh, it became a little chaotic, and construction was going very badly and going sideways, and I was then made responsible for getting the thing built and opened as well as creating the operating business. And nobody thought we would do that, but we did, and we got it open. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't have, but we did. <laughs> and, uh, we got it open uh, with a lot of trauma and a lot of difficulty because uh, the owners weren't willing to put any more money into this thing, and the London company had put so much in, they were almost bankrupt. Um, and uh, it opened, and uh, it was a little rocky, a little difficult, and then uh, along came 9-11, and uh, uh, the market had been a little soft, but after 9-11, the Las Vegas market became very soft, and the Aladdin was in big trouble financially. And I was telling the board, I sat on that board, I said, we need to do a packaged bankruptcy with our major lender, Bank of Nova Scotia, because uh, we just aren't going to make it. We're going to have to restructure this whole thing. And they said, no, 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 no. I said, well, I'm telling you, you're going to have to do that. If you don't, you're going to end up doing this the hard way, and that's going to be unpleasant. And they said, no, 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 no. I said, but you're not going to even make payroll next week, I don't think. And then you are all individually as directors going to have accountability for that. You don't want to be there, and I know I don't want to be there. Well, no, they didn't want to do that. And uh, following that board meeting, I went to my chief financial officer and general counsel. The general counsel, we already had hired bankruptcy attorneys. Uh, general counsel said, we're filing. We've got to file an 8K because we have to disclose this condition to third parties or we are all going to be liable. Absolutely. So we filed. Uh the next morning at 10 o'clock, I was fired. <laughs> that's, oh, gosh. That's number three. <laughs> <laughs> By now, you have very thick skin at this point. I, 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 can, I can imagine it already. You're like, okay, yeah, tell me something I haven't heard yet. Okay. <laughs> so we, we managed to go through that. I was fired, and uh, we had a big uh, issue of litigation because the way they did it, they didn't have a legal right to do it, and I ultimately prevailed. But uh, when I was fired at 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, that day at noon, the bank pulled their credit lines, and the following Friday, the company went into uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy uh, because the financial institutions wouldn't stand with them, which I knew they weren't going to. So the ownership was all of the owners lost their full equity interest in the business. Uh, it did get restructured. I was gone, and ultimately everybody ended up being gone. Uh, the company continued to struggle somewhat uh, through a lot of situations and ended up being bought by who? Harris Caesars. Oh, wow. <laughs> Full circle, huh? <laughs> no, I, I had nothing to do with it. I wasn't involved with it at that time. But that, that is who ended up owning it, and it's now called Planet Hollywood. Now, I know that listening to this, you go, 
good gosh, this man has so much knowledge and so many stories and insights. And that's the point. That's why I like pulling people like Richard on our show. Uh, Stay tuned because in the next episode, you are going to hear even further what makes Richard such a unique person, why he is such a great relationship for you to have on the show as an audience member. But more importantly, uh, how he thinks and feels about millennials being able to take advantage of this industry that is just sitting out there waiting for somebody to really take the helm and, and come in and do something powerful with it. So you as a millennial or you as someone who is interested in the gaming world can do that. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm really appreciative of you taking the time out to hear our show today. If you would, please, please, please ensure that you do a few things for us. Go to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Find us at High Level Wisdom. Give us a shout. Tell us what you like about the show. Tell us about your favorite episode. Follow us on those areas. You can also go to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you consume our content media. Leave us a like. Leave us a share. Tell others about us. We'd be so happy to hear about it. Until I talk to you in the next episode, I hope you have a great day and I look forward to hearing you listen to my second portion of this fascinating interview in two days. Take care. Now, if you've been listening to High Level Wisdom for New Generation Leaders for some time now, you know that we talk to CEOs and direct decision makers every single week. Well, why not have your product or resource ad right here? Yes, right here. You can visit us at highlevelwisdom.com forward slash advertise to find out how you can purchase this space right here today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best-kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.